Now, Birdsong, fun and fascinating talk about the top stories in today's headlines. Birdsong may just be the most qualified talk show host in the business, thanks to his many careers in law, government, and education. Here's your host, Leonard Birdsong. Hello, folks. This is Birdsong back with you. So happy to be with you on the radio. Got a good show for you today. We've got a guest. Uh, he's a professor at Temple University, a psychology professor. We're going to talk about uh, mass murders, why science can't identify who might be a mass murderer. We have also some news of the week. There was lots of news last week. I'm going to talk about some things and give you my opinion. What were they? The Stormy Daniels story. The president's to meet with Kim Jong-un. The firing of uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State. And what about that report from the House Intelligence Committee saying there is no collusion with Russia or Russian interference in the 2016 election? Of course, there will be time for some dumb criminal law stories, some riddles, and maybe even time for another Paul Harvey story. Right now, let's start uh, with our guest. Um, there's no debating that mental health care is underfunded, is and in need of improvements. But is that a key preventing mass shootings like the one at Florida High School a month ago today? We have the guest, Dr. Professor Frank Farley with us. Professor Farley, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You are a psychologist at Temple University, and uh, I've read some of the things that you've said about mass murderers. They're all different but you don't believe that we can, or science can identify them. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the main thing is we haven't had enough cases to draw broad conclusions. That is, they usually kill themselves or they get killed, and uh, they don't get extensively studied. And so, you know, when you uh, are going to slap diagnoses on people, uh, it's essential that you can back it up with uh, a lot of research. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, you take something like schizophrenia. We've had decades of research on schizophrenia. And so, therefore, the diagnosis is pretty solid. We know a lot about it. Uh, we know, you know, what kind of therapy to put uh, them in, whether it's medical, uh, th- you know, med- medication or psychotherapy, etc. Mass murderers. I don't. I don't know a lot about schizophrenia, but it occurs very often in young people at twenties in their twenties. That's when it usually manifests itself. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes even earlier than that. But the, you know, I'm using it as a case example of that. We know quite a bit about it, but you take mass murderers. We know very little about the mental status, the mental life. I mean, they're clearly sick people. But they're and, sick in a and, very... and I would say people full of hate based on what I've been seeing for the last few years. Sure. Uh, there's, uh, I agree with you completely. But when you start then talking about, well, uh, we, we need to focus heavily on mental health issues when we talk about mass murderers, we have to be super cautious because um, we don't want to, to pull into the dragnet people who might have mental health issues, but they wouldn't kill a fly, you know, (laughs) and that's the big problem with focusing so much on mental health when we don't know much about the mind of the mass murderer. We haven't had enough cases 
over time that have been thoroughly studied um, to, to draw sweeping conclusions. For example, I spent many years at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced. He was a horrendous serial killer. And a cannibal. Oh, and a cannibal, indeed. And um, he was sentenced to a prison not that far from my house. Could I get to study him extensively? No, because he got killed in the prison. <laughs> That's right. That's what happens to people like that. Yes. So uh, he didn't get he didn't get the, he wasn't studied very much. And and, and let me tell you about very, one other. This fellow John Wayne Gacy. Remember him? Oh, sure. He wasn't studied at all, and I'm aware of. Right. And I don't think so either. The current uh, the current case. This fellow Nick. Um, Nicholas Cruz in Parkland, Florida, shooting there. Yeah. Now, maybe he can get studied because he's alive, he's incarceration, he's admitted to the murders, though, which means that the court system can handle him very quickly because he's already admitted to the, the heinous crime. And, and just Florida a few days has... ago, he was indicted on 14 counts of first-degree murder, and they want to give him the death penalty. And that's what will happen, undoubtedly, and Florida has the death penalty, so... Here again, my feeling is, oh, my God, we're really not going to be able to get between his ears because he's going to be gone. So we have to be cautious on the mental health thing. And I worry about people, you know, who are not mass murderers who have mental health issues, that they don't get swept up, you know, in a rush to judgment about the mental health and the mental status of mass murderers. We just don't know enough about those very, and they're very sick people, obviously, but how, what is their sickness is the issue. And is their sickness, could their sickness, um, Professor, be that they have some self-hate and fear of life? Um, when I think of this fellow, Nicholas Cruz, he seemed to have had an awful life in that he was... Um, I guess his own mother died. He was adopted, and uh, he seems like he hated a whole lot of things. He, he went on said he hated his mother. He hated everyone. He hated black people. He hated Jews. He hated women. And then we had a couple of years ago that fellow who killed people in the church in South Carolina. That was just awful. He goes to a church service. He sits there for an hour, and then he pulls out a gun and shoots and kills nine people. He was full of hate, too. I, I don't know. Maybe it was self-hate. Self-hate. I'm not sure. Well, you know, I think we could put that in the recipe as one of the ingredients. The question is, what are, the, what are all the ingredients in the recipe of the mass murderer? And are the recipes all the same from one to the next to the next to the next? There are signs. For, so for example, just about everybody agrees that that we, we, we blew it where Nick Cruz is concerned. That is, when he posts on the Internet that he wants to be, like, the top school shooter. Yeah. That's what he wants to be. This is his aspiration, to be a school shooter. I mean, that's about as big a red flag as I've ever seen. <laughs> that's right. You know, you, You're you right about get, that. You don't get more clear than that. And the several dozen police visits. You know, it all, it clearly had gotten to a tipping point where he needed to be, uh, directly, uh, interrogated and probably put into a, a psychiatric institution for deeper assessment, you know, mm -hmm. to find out what was going on, you know, between his ears. But we mm -hmm. blew it on that, on, on two or three accounts with him. But, you know, we have to watch things like, um, 
this whole concept of preventive detention. You know, you can't arrest people for crimes they have not committed. And well, that, that's a very interesting, very interesting topic because there are, you know, I used to be a federal prosecutor. There are some situations where you can try to get preventive detention by having a hearing before the court, before this person does something else. It didn't work very well, but some states still have that statute that you can seek preventive detention. I don't know if it'll work with mass murderers. The thing that I see is so many of them are young. I mean, not as young as uh, Cruz was 19, this fellow in Florida, but we had someone in uh, South Carolina, a fellow by the name Jesse Osborne. He was about, he was a eighth grader, and he wanted to kill 50 to 60 people in his school. Now, he only managed to shoot one, shoot and kill one person, but <laughs> that was bad enough. Uh, indeed, and you know, once you you're dealing with kids that young, um, we don't know nearly as much about their mental life and the mental illness with kids of that age than of somebody of twenty five, thirty, or forty or fifty. Right, but we do so, know, and I'm not a psychologist. You are, but I like having been in criminal law for a long time. We know that young people's brains don't really fully develop until they're in their mid twenties. So maybe they're uh, more impressionable. Indeed. And, you know, but <clears throat> you were talking about hate, and you and I certainly agree that that's got to be one of the ingredients in the recipe for a lot of these mass murderers. But, uh, you know, you take, let's just focus on young men in America. There are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, who might fit that <laughs> criterion, you know, right. that they have a lot of hate. So how do you narrow in and sort of zero in on the serious perpetrator or the potential perpetrator. I wish we were there, and we desperately need to get there. We can't go on as a civilized, you know, country with this relentless violence. And, yeah, uh, that's that's right. And I, I would like, as a psychologist, what might you suggest we do? You say well, that we need more study, but how do we do that? Well, for sure we study every possible perpetrator of any form of gun homicide, study them extensively. However, we should realize that the mental health part is only part of it. You know, we, we know that gun availability is an issue. It's got to be dealt with assault weapons, etc. Uh, very weak background checks or none at all. Right. Uh, we need to tighten up all of those factors for sure. And hardening the sites. It's not rocket science to make a, a, a school safe. It, it, you know, we've, uh, courthouses, uh, you know that better than me, courthouses are safe, basically. Yep. They have They're metal right. they detectors. Are. They have metal detectors and they have, they're generally full of police who have guns. <laughs> or at least marshals or bailiffs. <laughs> Well, you know, we've got to cough up the money if we want to save the lives of our wonderful youth in this country. And well, you're absolutely right, but let, let me just stop you. Professor, can you imagine, I don't know your age, but I can just say that, you know, I'm up in years, but I couldn't have imagined having going to school, elementary school, high school, and maybe even college, fearing that someone's going to come in and commit mass murder in my class or in my school. Can you imagine having having that well, happen? In the modern world, who would have thought after 9-11 that America would be invaded, you know, and we were. 
uh, we'll adapt. Kids will get used to it in the schools. They have to. It'll it'll slow them down getting into the school, going through the metal detector. They'll get used to it. That cop that's at every entrance with a, a well-armed cop will become their friend. They'll get to know his name or her name. Just in the old days when we had community policing and the cop walked through the street and everybody knew his name and he knew them because he was always assigned to the same community, same area. They'll get to know that police officer and he'll know them. And uh, they, they will realize that they've got to go through this exercise and it's part of safety and they'll live with it. Uh, you know, they're in an age range in, in, the, in the schools of America where they're very adaptable and very resilient, and I'm not worried about that at all. And to me, job one is to harden the sites, not just right. in schools, but in all areas where there's large congregations of the public. They need to be hardened. I think getting a license to operate a concert hall, you need to, I think, submit a proposal you know, to local government as to your security to be sure that it's up to scratch. And, uh, you know, the U.S. military can provide all sorts of training for, for, uh, for such uh, security and, and, and the police in America. You know, we know a lot about that. So it's not rocket scientists, science, in my view, to make American schools safe so nobody's getting in there with an AR-15. Yeah, right. Well, that, that, those, your thoughts sound real good, but do we have the will to do it? I hope so. Now, again, I really am glad that you came on. I thank you for this. I think I indicated to you when I got in touch with you that, uh, when I was in Germany years ago, I was a hearing officer for the State Department for former Nazi party members who wanted to get non-immigrant visas to go to the United States. This was in the middle 80s. Many of these people I interviewed may have been involved in mass murder themselves because many of them were in the SS, which is uh, the death, many of the death squads. I, you know, met them when they were 75 and 80 years old, but from what I read about them, they were some bad, bad people who loved to kill Jews. It's just awful. God, what an experience. Have you written a book on that? <laughs> no, I haven't written oh a book God. on it. I do, I do lecture on it sometime, but the point is, is that these people, at least at 75 and 80, most of them, not all, most of them were, uh, they were honest about the fact that they were, they did things foolish, that they were led astray by a monster, and they were repentant. Let me put it that way. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them that I spoke to and interviewed. So, but I also, I come back to the idea that there was a lot of hate in those people, okay? You know, it's this uh, one feature of everything we're talking about is the so-called divided mind. You know, I I read Mein Kampf. I hadn't read it before. I read it this uh, a few months ago, this past Uh fall. Um, And, you know, the divided mind, the... These people were monsters in the sense that they, as you said, they loved to kill, they loved to kill Jews, etc. And yet, they probably had loving relationships with their own family, you know, their own loved ones. And uh, Hitler, I had no doubt that he loved Ava Brown uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, he had no problem killing, slaughtering, having people slaughtered by the millions. That's right. That is an astounding quality of the human mind that it can hold... Two 
completely opposite emotions at the same time and right. still go on living. We need to get, we need to understand that better than we do today. All right, as the psychologist, I want you to keep studying it. <laughs> Professor Farley, thank you so much for coming on with us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Stick with us, folks. Birdsong has more for you today. We'll be back in a moment. Birdsong back with you. We just talked to Professor Frank Farley. He's a psychologist at Temple University. As a matter of fact, he's a former president of the American Psychological Association. We talked about how you identify mass murderers before they become murderers. There needs to be more study, he says. Now, I'm glad he came on. We're going to talk about some news of this past week. There's been so much news. I don't know where to start, but I'm going to start where I think I would like to start and tell you about things. You can email me with your thoughts if you'd like to at lbirdsong, that's L-B-I-R-D-S-O-N-G 22 at gmail.com. The first thing in the news is Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels is a what they call an adult movie star or porn star. Supposedly, she had, or allegedly, she had an affair, a sexual affair with our president, Donald Trump, back in 2006, long before he was president. However, seemingly, she was paid $130,000 before the 2016 election to not say anything about their relationship. Now, it's come out that this has happened Seemingly, the president doesn't want this story in the news. Stormy Daniels, or at least the lawyer for Donald Trump, supposedly paid Stormy Daniels $130,000 to keep her mouth shut. She has now gotten her own lawyer to say that she is willing to give back the $130,000 because the contract which she signed was never signed by Donald Trump. Therefore, it's an invalid contract. She wants to be able to say whatever she wants. Her contract was a gag order that she was not supposed to say anything about the president. This was about two weeks before the 2016 election. However, she says now, since she found that the president or Donald Trump never signed the agreement, it's null and void. And she can say anything she wants. As a matter of fact, she's willing to give back the $130,000 to the lawyer that supposedly brokered this deal. Now, to thicken the plot, 60 Minutes has already taped a program about her and what she might want to say. The president's lawyer is trying to get that off the air, but we will see what happens. The Stormy Daniels affair is something that our president does not want in the news. So, where will it go? I believe that she will give the 60-minute interview. Generally, courts don't want to suppress the news. That's called prior restraint. So we will see what happens there. Now, in this past week, we also had a very big surprise where the 
leader of North Korea called the People's Democratic Republic of Korea. It's a communist regime. We just call it North Korea. Kim Jong-un says he wants to meet with President Trump. He wants to sit down and have negotiations about what they should do about the North Korean peninsula, about the Korean peninsula as far as denuclearization. Now, he would be, if Donald Trump does this, he'd be the first American president to meet with the leader of North Korea. North Korea would probably get a lot out of this if it happens. Now, I hope that if this comes off, supposedly they're supposed to do this in late May, that's a couple of months from now, if this comes off, I hope it would be to our benefit, but I'm afraid it may not be. Why is that? Well, I used to be a foreign service officer. I used to work overseas in embassies and consulates. And one of the things I have problems with, I know that normally if you're going to have a presidential visit or a summit, it usually takes three to six months to put it all together. There's a lot to be done. There are visas to be given, and there are things that have to be worked out between two governments as to who can come on the visit. Right now, we don't know where it would be. In 1978, I was stationed uh, in the uh, embassy in Nigeria. President Carter came there. There was six months of, of a preparation for that presidential visit. He was in Nigeria for four days, and it took six months to get it ready. So I don't know how much the State Department can do between now and the end of May to have this kind of sit-down. Now, the other part about it is what would we get out of this? Is Kim Jong-un ready to give up all of his nuclear weapons? I doubt that. Now, he does not have as many nuclear weapons as the United States. We have several thousand. He has about a 100, they say. I don't think either country really wants to use nukes, but I don't know what Trump, President Trump, can get out of this. Maybe he can get a peace plan. In 1994, when Clinton was president, uh, Kim Jong-un's father sought peace with the United States and with nuclear denuclearization. Clinton sent his uh, Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, to North Korea. She sat down with the leader there. They thought they had a deal. And uh, the father of this Korea now went, uh, did not go through with the deal. So I don't know. A lot of people are saying that President Trump should not sit down with Kim Jong-un because what this will show to the world is he will now think, that is, Kim Jong-un, will think that he's on par with the United States. It would be a real coup for him to have his photograph taken with the President of the United States, and he can sort of laud this over an awful lot of people. I just don't see good things happening here, but I can hope for the best. Now, another thing that happened this week, very... How would you say? Something I didn't expect. The president fired the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. The Secretary of State is the president's representative 
to foreign nations. He's a spokesperson for the President of the United States. It's usually a lofty position. Again, I served in the State Department under two Secretaries of State, George Schultz and before that, Cyrus Vance. They were men of upstanding integrity, and I think Mr. Tillerson was too, but President Trump has not let him do the kinds of things that a Secretary of State does. Very often, among other things, the Secretary of State not only speaks for the president, but he or she tries to spread the idea of democracy around the world. There has been little talk of democracy coming out of the current State Department. As a matter of fact, the State Department has been decimated, and the, the morale is low. Many people have been fired. Many people have retired. We have 38 ambassadorships around the world that haven't been filled, and we need to fill 16 under Secretary of State positions. But none of that has happened. Now, why that's important is that when you're going to have a presidential visit of the kind they're talking about with Kim Jong-un, wherever it's going to be, you rely on the State Department to put these things together and make sure the president knows what to say and what to do. This State Department is a shell or a shadow of its former self. Tillerson has not done much to help project democracy around the world, in my opinion, but he was fired in a tweet. The president didn't fire him in person, and I think that was an outright slap in the face. This is just my thought. Finally, in news last week, we have the House Intelligence Committee saying that they're ending their work on the Russian probe concerning was there collusion. As a matter of fact, they wrote a 150-page report saying that there was no conclusion or collusion with Russia or the Russian interference in the 2016 election. Now, the problem with writing a report like this is that the only people who signed off on this were the Republicans. A committee has both Republican and Democratic members. They're almost same number. However, the Republicans outnumber the Democrats, and the Democrats had no say in ending this probe. It was not fair, and we know that there was collusion. We have our intelligence services that talked about it. We don't know how far it goes, and we don't know for sure whether our president was involved in that collusion. That's why we have a special counsel, Robert Mueller, investigating to see if there were crimes committed. And we also have the Senate, which is still looking into all of this. Senate has a committee trying to find out what happened. Bottom line of all of this news is that, in my opinion, these stories about Rex Tillerson and about Kim Jong-un and the meeting of the president have taken the porn star, Stormy Daniels is her name, off the front page. And I think our president likes that. This is Birdsong. Stick with me. I've got more to come.
This is Birdsong back with you. We have more to the show. I hope you've been interested in what we've had to say today. My aim on my show is to inform and to entertain. We talked to a psychologist from Temple University, Dr. Frank Farley, Professor Frank Farley. I gave you some of my views on the news of the week about the Stormy Daniels matter, the Jong, the Kim Jong Un, um, offer of to sit down with President Trump face to face and, uh, about the firing of the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and about the House Intelligence Committee. Now we want to go a little lighter and talk about some dumb criminal law stories. These are stories that I collect from all over the world, and uh, I write about them for my blog, birdsongslaw.com. You can read some of them there. I also have some books that I've written that are for sale about dumb criminal law stories. They're on amazon.com, or you can go to leonardbirdsong.com to order them. They're funny. So here's some stories that I worked on for last summer. They come from a number of different places. We start with Florida. The headline reads, Hold Your Horses. An idiot has been charged with using an AK-47 to shoot out the tires of a vehicle belonging to a man he thought stole his horses. David Derringer became unhinged after spotting two of his free-ranging horses on Isidro Ruiz's property near Albuquerque, according to a criminal complaint. Derringer allegedly freed the horses, then fired the assault rifle when Ruiz tried to block him from leaving his land. Oh, my God. Hold your horses. <laughs> All right, another story from Florida. The headline on this one, Not a Leg to Stand On. Not a Leg to Stand On. In late August, a man stuffed heroin into his fake leg and tried to smuggle into to a Florida jail. Of course, officers found the dope along with a syringe inside of William Connolly's prosthetic leg after he refused to take it off at the Marion County Jail. Yes, he was arrested and put himself, or himself he was put in the Marion County Jail. <laughs> Not a leg to stand on. <laughs> All right, what else do we have? Okay, a story from Illinois. The headline, Salsa Madness. A man became so enraged, I'm sorry, a man became so enraged when his mother scolded him for keeping salsa in his bedroom that he slammed her against a wall and smashed a TV, according to the police. Jeffrey Kormatsky, 42, who lives with his 64-year-old mother in the town of Joliet, Illinois, injured her shoulder after she complained about his salsa snacking habits. Unfortunately for him, he was charged with domestic battery over the tantrum. My, my, Jeffrey, injuring your mother, that's bad. That's bad. Here's a story from India, kind of story you seldom see. The headline, no indoor toilet, no more marriage. We learn that a judge granted a woman's divorce. Why? On the grounds that her husband would not build a toilet inside their home. Indian law only allows divorce in limited cases, such as for domestic violence or cruelty to your spouse. 
Now, the woman maintained that having to go to the bathroom out in the fields in public amounted to torture. In his ruling, the judge opined, quote, We spend money on buying tobacco, liquor, and mobile phones, but are unwilling to construct toilets to protect the dignity of our family, end quote. She was granted her divorce. <laughs> no indoor toilet, no more marriage. Here's one from Pennsylvania. Short headline. A purple perp? It's been reported that Ferguson Township police are looking for a tall man who wore a purple dress and an ivory-colored hood when he robbed a credit union. Police say that the man threatened to use a gun and a bomb if the teller refused to give him money at the SPE Federal Credit Union at about 4 p.m. one afternoon in late August. So far, no arrest has been made, but police have posted a photo of the bank's from the bank's camera on the department's Facebook page, a man in a purple dress with an ivory-colored hood. Oh, my. <laughs> South Carolina. Headline says, they were not up to par. They were not up to par. A neighbor thought a cop a neighbor thought a couple was having a medical emergency when he spotted them lying down on a golf course, but they were actually having sex. D. Payne, 19, and K. Hennessy, 24, were arrested for allegedly doing the wild thing on the eighth hole of the course in Tega Key. The neighbor told authorities who had responded that he had first thought someone was hurt until he looked closer with binoculars. <laughs> the wild thing, huh? They were not up to par, get it, on golf course? <laughs> Texas, headline, Immigrants on ICE, and ICE is capital I-C-E, which stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Immigrants on ICE, the story. Sixty immigrants were recently found in a load of ice-covered broccoli in a refrigerated trailer at a South Texas border checkpoint. ICE agents, that is ICE agents, opened the padlock trailer in Falfuras and found dozens of immigrants amid pallets of broccoli lined with ice. No one was hurt, and the trucker faces immigrant smuggling charges. Immigrants on ice. What a play on words. <laughs> All right. California. You scream, they scream, we all scream for ice cream, says the headline. A wannabe bandit, a wannabe bandit ordered an ice cream cone at a Santa Rosa Baskin Robbins. This was late last August. He got his cone, then drew a pistol and announced a robbery. When no one handed him money, he reached in the cash register, but an employee slammed the drawer on his hand. Ouch! The man then ran from the store without any money or without his ice cream cone. Police are still looking for the man. No rest has been made. Been made. All right, final story for the day. This one comes out of Florida also. The headline, Chihuahua Crime Stopper. We learned that a tiny chihuahua 
bit the leg of a vicious bandit attacking its owner. Blake Fairman, 45, was walking her seven-year-old dog, Coco, in Gainesville, Florida, when a would-be thief smashed a bottle over the woman's head and demanded cash. The tiny pooch sprang into action by biting the felon's calf muscle and would not let go until the bandit was forced to hobble away. He hobbled away in a panic, empty-handed. The Chihuahua Crime Stopper. <laughs> these stories never end, these dumb criminal law stories. This is Birdsong. I'll be back with you. If you want to buy some of my stories or my books, go to LeonardBirdsong.com or Amazon.com. Type in Professor Birdsong's dumbest criminal law stories. Be back with you in a moment. Stick with us. There's more to come. Okay, Birdsong back here with you. Good show today. I hope you're enjoying it. I certainly am. Here's some riddles that I'm going to give you. I will give you the answers at the end of this program. See if you can figure these out. First riddle. What do space aliens cook in their skillets? What do space aliens cook in their skillets? That's the first one. The second one. What is the fastest punctuation mark? What is the fastest punctuation mark? Finally, why is it so hard to fool a ballerina? Those are the three riddles I want you to contemplate while I read you a story originally done by Paul Harvey. I love Paul Harvey. He was a heck of a broadcaster. I wish I could live up to his ideals. Here's a story, and actually the story was delivered by Paul Harvey, but it was written by his son, Paul Arant. The story is entitled, The Almost Midshipman. Such is the romance of the sea. Its appeal, especially to the young, that small boys still dream of running off to join the Navy. And so did this one boy. His big brother had been a Navy man, had many exciting recollections of his service. Occasionally, brothers' Navy comrades were dimmer dinner guests and what stories they told. Reliving their adventures through countless all-but-sleepless nights, the small boy grew impatiently into his teens. Now, of a suitable age to enlist in the armed forces, he discussed the matter with his big brother, received only encouragement. Perhaps with his brother's help, the boy might enter officer training, might go into the Navy as a midshipman aboard a real Navy war vessel. It was a, it was a thrilling prospect. All that remained was to convince the boy's mother. Now the proposal was greeted with a heavy sigh. Mother had bravely accepted all the challenges in her life. The loss of her husband only five years before, the difficulty of rearing more than a half dozen young ones all by herself. And here was yet another challenge. To give up her teenager, she still perceived as her baby. Mother, brave once again, gave her consent. 
The boy might enlist in the Navy if he wished, and he did. Surely this was the happiest time heretofore of the young man's life. A joyous drama full of glitter and grandeur and great expectation. Now scene two. The boy is standing before his mother in a dashing midshipman's uniform. He is bidding her farewell. His belongings are already aboard ship, and the vessel is ready to sail. Goodbye, he tells his mother. He will miss her. That's when it happened. In an unexpected and uncharacteristic outpouring of emotion, mother began to sob, to cry. This woman, who had already endured so much heartache, now refused to endure any more. Her son must not board that ship. He must not go into the Navy. He must stay and be strong for the rest of the family, especially for her. Big Brother was there, trying to persuade Mother of the Navy's virtues. He did so, want a Navy career for himself, but not if it meant bearing the memory of his mother's grief. Much as it disappointed him, he would return his uniform, would order his belongings ashore. Of all the young men who might have left home in search of adventure and did not, of this world's many almost midshipmen, the boy you have just met was just one more. Yet how might any other decision on his behalf have affected the Revolutionary War? Now that is the rest of the story. We owe a mother's eleventh-hour anxiety for preventing one young man from ascending through the ranks of the British Navy. A boy of fifteen, handsomely clad, bags packed and on board, prepared to embark on quite a different adventure than that for which you remember him. A boy of fifteen. His name? George Washington. Now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> I hope you like that, folks. This is Birdsong. We're coming to the end of the show here. I gave you some riddles. What do space aliens cook in their skillets? Could you figure that one out? What do space aliens cook in their skillets? Well, folks, they cook unidentified frying objects. <laughs> Second riddle. What is the fastest punctuation mark? What is the fastest punctuation mark? Well, it's the dash. Get it? <laughs> the dash. Finally, why is it so hard to fool a ballerina? Why is it so hard to fool a ballerina? Well, that's easy. It's because they're always on their toes. <laughs> this is Birdsong. Use those. Tell your friends. Stick with us. Come back next week. Love to talk to you folks. This is Birdsong signing off. <laughs>